Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Hey, it's good to see you. We're glad you're here this morning. Kids, if you guys want to be dismissed to go to our G2 area, you can do that. Have a lot of fun. We're excited about you guys getting to be with Matt today and welcome him back. Uh, he's been gone for a couple of weeks, and so we're glad he's back with us. Hey, something else we didn't get to celebrate during the announcements this morning was that uh, this weekend was Kyle's birthday. Kyle's playing drums today instead of leading in worship, but you guys tell him happy birthday. Uh, and then... Um, Nathan, I just wanted to say thanks, man, for what you do and your leadership, and uh, and I'm glad we got to give you some Chuck Taylor so I could wear mine today. I wanted to I wanted to wear mine in honor of you today. Okay, so um, how many of you actually wore Chuck Taylors to like play sports in? Like these were your athletic shoes. Some of you, yeah. I don't know how your generation doesn't have broken ankles and feet that are destroyed. These are the least comfortable shoes I think I've ever worn. But anyway, nonetheless, that's not why we're here today. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation with us. Let's celebrate God's Word together. We're going to be hopefully completing Revelation chapters 10 and 11 today. If you're new with us, we are going through the book of Revelation. We're talking about uh, not just, our, our intent is not just to say what's going to happen at the end and how is the end going to unfold, but the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is in the title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? And so we're looking throughout this book to see how does Jesus reveal himself? Who does he tell us he is? How does that let us know how to worship him, how to live for him now, how to live for him in anticipation of the future? And should the church be part of a tribulation or great tribulation period? What would it look like for us to live out our faith in those days? And what will it look like for future Christians if that doesn't happen during our time period? If, if God delays his coming, if Jesus doesn't return imminently, then what will Christians need to do in those last days when Jesus is, Jesus is preparing to return? So for the past few weeks, just kind of as a, a recap, the past few weeks we've been looking at the judgments of God poured out on the earth through the breaking of seven seals on a scroll. John said he saw God holding a scroll in his right hand that had seven seals on it. No one was worthy to open it until Jesus stepped forward, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who actually was a lamb that looked as if he had been slain because he had. He was alone worthy to take the scroll from God's hand to open the seven seals. Then we saw also after the seven seals, there were seven trumpet judgments that introduced violent plagues and demonic activity on the earth. And in each of these judgments, what we've seen is also a measure of God's mercy, not just his justice. 
We've seen that as God has poured out these things on humanity, on the earth, to punish sin, to punish wickedness, He's also, at this point, not destroyed everything and everyone. There's a measure of mercy that comes as Jesus opens these judgments up on the earth because he destroys at first a fourth of things, then in the trumpet judgments, a third of things. But in doing so, he still is merciful. His intent is to introduce himself to the world and to reveal himself to the world so that he can then save the world. His hope in all of these things is that as the world falls apart and as he brings judgment against humanity and against sin and against Satan that people would turn to him for salvation. And yet what we saw at the end of the last chapter that we studied was that most people on earth probably will not, especially at the very end, that they'll rebel against God. And so the purpose of these things has been playing out, but it shows us that Jesus is literally willing to do whatever it takes to get people's attention while also bringing an end to the reign of Satan and the reign of sin so that he can establish his kingdom on the earth that's going to be an eternal kingdom where God reigns with man. So the question that we're going to address today is this, and if you're following along our app and you want to take notes or fill in the blanks, or if you're just writing some things down on the back of your bulletin, here's the question of the day. What is the role of the people of God in the period known as the tribulation. During this period of tribulation, when the seals are open, when the trumpets are open, later we're going to look and see bowls poured out of God's judgment. What should people who follow Christ during that period of time do? What's the role of the people of God, the church, during that period of time? So John is going to once again back up and show us things which will take place during this period of tribulation and great tribulation. We've been talking all along that John is showing us a vision and then backing up, and he'll talk about another vision, and he'll show us these other things, and a lot of them run simultaneously or they're on top of each other. It's not necessarily a complete linear picture of, progr picture of progression. It's John telling us something, backing up, and say, let me tell you again from a different perspective. Here it is from this perspective. Now he's going to back up again, and he's going to tell us during this period of the trumpet judgment, Last week we skipped ahead to chapter 11 because we wanted to get to the seventh trumpet judgment. Today we're going to go back to chapter 10. We're playing hopscotch throughout the book of Revelation. Today we're going to go back to chapter 10 and John's again going to kind of back up and go, all right, now, all of these judgments that are playing out, here's the intermission. Here's what's happening in the middle of these things. And so John's going to give us this picture. And beginning in chapter 10, I want us to read together. So John says this. This is right after the sixth trumpet has been blown and people were not willing to repent. John says in chapter 10, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven and he was uh, robed in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand and he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion and when he shouted the voices of the seven thunders spoke and when the seven thunders spoke I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven say seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore to him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that's in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I, look, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so when John sees this, he says there was another angel. Now we've got to remember, he's been talking about seven angels with seven trumpets. And so he says, I've been watching these seven angels with seven trumpets. But then he goes, then there was another angel. So this is different from the angels with the trumpets. He says, this angel, uh, which is magnificent in appearance, is carrying a little scroll. And people speculate about different things about this scroll. What does it mean? What scroll is it? Is it the scroll that God had in his hand and that Jesus took and opened? Is that the scroll? Is it a different scroll that we haven't been introduced to yet? Is this the first time we're seeing this scroll? Is it little because the angel's so big? When John says it was a little scroll, it was the same scroll, but the angel's just enormous, and so it's just little in his hand. Uh, does it have nothing to do with that? It's just simply a little scroll, uh, regardless of the angel's stature. And the truth is, we don't know. We don't know 100%. Uh, my best guess, or if I were to, to take a stab at it, uh, I would say it's probably the same scroll that God held in his hand and that Jesus took and opened the seals on. And the reason that I think that or, or would lean that way is because it seems to carry the same message of judgment that the original scroll held. But I'm not certain about that, and there's no reason to say that's a hill to die on for any of us. It's an angel that has a little scroll. And so he talks about this, and he says, we're, we're told simply that the angel comes down from heaven to earth, and he plants one foot on the land, he plants another foot on the sea. And we go, number one, that just shows the enormity of this angel. This is a large angel. Number two, a way to think about this is simply that he's saying this message is for the entire world. The, the message that the angel holds in his hand in this little scroll is important for everyone. It's all-encompassing. It encompasses the whole world. And so that may be the best way to think about what's taking place as the angel has his foot on the land and on the sea. But next, we're told that when the angel sh shouts, that seven thunders speak up. And John says, I was about to record what the seven thunders said when a voice from heaven told me to seal up what they said and don't write it down, don't record it. And so this voice that speaks out to John, I believe, is the voice of God. I believe God is saying, John, here's what you heard the seven thunders. The seven thunders spoke, but don't record what it says. This is something that God has done in the past. If you go back and study the book of Daniel, I would encourage you to do that. We can't fully understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. We're going to refer back quite a bit today to some other books of prophecy. But the prophet Daniel was given a vision about the future of the end times. And a time came when Daniel saw something and he said, I've, I've got to write this down. And God told Daniel, don't record that. Or you can write it down, but you've got to seal up the scroll. Don't let anybody read it. It's a message for the future you're not intended to tell right now. So this is consistent with how God acts as he unfolds his revelation of the future, as he unfolds his eschatological timeline. And so this message that, uh, that John hears, he says, I don't want you to, to write it down. I want you to record it. Keep it from people. It's only for me to know. The only hint we get about what this message might be is the fact that it came from thunders. And in apocalyptic literature, in end days kinds of material like this, thunder typically signifies judgment. And so when we think about this, if there's a message from the thunder of heaven that John hears and is about to record, it may simply be that the seven thunders represent another seven judgments, or it may just be a completion of judgment. 
Uh, and it also could be none of that. So take that for what it's worth, okay? Um, but the big deal is we don't need to speculate about something that God says, I'm keeping that for me. There's no reason to, right? There's no reason to form deep theologies about this. And here's what we believe the seven thunders say. You just go, you know what? There were seven thunders. They spoke. John heard them. God didn't want us to know. So we don't. <laughs> and that's that. And so that's where we're going to land on that, okay? Let's look at the, the next part of the, the chapter. John says in verse 5, Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that's in them, the earth and all that's in it, and the sea and all that's in it, and said, there will be no more delay. So basically this angel takes an oath. He raises his right hand to heaven. He has the seal in the left hand. He says, there'll be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh, when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so John's told by this angel, there'll be no more delay. He says the angel holds the scroll in his left hand. He raises his right hand to take an oath in heaven, and he says there'll be no more delay. This is a period of time between the sixth trumpet sounding and the seventh trumpet sounding. The angel is basically saying, as the days leading up to the seventh trumpet are about to sound, this is the end. There's no more delay. The mystery of God will be made known to the whole earth. Nothing else is going to come between the end of the sixth trumpet and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. There will be this period of time, but this is the next set of events. God is coming and there will be no more delay. If you go back and read the beginning in the book of Daniel, you'll find that there is a delay. Daniel talks about this number of weeks that happens, 69 weeks, and then there's a 70th week, but there's a pause between those things. There's a delay in the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. And there's some confusing things about that. We can have a private conversation about it later. But basically, God just tells Daniel, there's going to be this delay. Now when we get to Revelation and John, when John sees his vision of the future and Jesus is letting him see the trumpet judgments that come and the sixth trumpet and now the seventh that is anticipated, he goes, there's no more delay, John. This is it. These days leading to the seventh trumpet, it's it. It's over. And so John sees this. But he's also told that at the end of this time, the mystery of God will be revealed. So what's the mystery of God? Well, to understand that, I think we need to go back and look at some other New Testament writings. Paul writes in Romans and Ephesians. Let's look at these passages together. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, Paul writes and says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery that was hidden for long ages past, but now is revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith. Because what's the mystery? The mystery is that there's something in Jesus, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. He makes it even more clear in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. 
in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. And so he says this mystery of God is the gospel of Jesus. It is Jesus coming in the flesh, giving his life as an eternal sacrifice before God for his people that anyone who would repent of their sins, receive him as Savior, turn their life over to him and live out their days for his glory and his purposes, Jew or Gentile, are melded together in this one family. That's the mystery of the gospel. God is not just for the Jewish people. He's also for the Gentiles. And so when we think about this, George Ladd has this great quote. He says, the mystery of God is his total redemptive purpose, which includes the judgment of evil and the eschatological salvation of his people. So we find in this that God is making himself known through judgment, both to people who follow Christ and to call sinners to himself, Jew and Gentile alike. That the mystery of God is the gospel for everyone through the person of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all the law, of all the prophets. He is God's answer. He is the yes and the amen. And when we come under his authority and we come to faith in him, he changes us, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile. So John is instructed to not only hear this message, but he says he's instructed by God to take the little scroll out of the angel's hand and then to do something weird. I bet you've never been told this. Uh, maybe your dog ate your homework, but I bet you were never told to eat your homework. John say, hey, you see that scroll over there in the angel's hand? I want you to go and grab it, John, and then I want you to eat it. <laughs> John's like, excuse me, what? Uh, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll just go do that, right? And he does. He's obedient. He goes over and, and he takes this scroll. And this is also something that happens in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. We don't have time to look at it together this morning uh, because it's a lengthy passage. But if you are interested in studying it for yourself, look in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, and you'll see the same thing play out. Ezekiel's given a vision of the future. And God tells him, hey, I, there's this scroll, and I want you to take it. I want you to eat it. And it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. It's going to be sour. It's going to turn your stomach sour, but I want you to do this. It's this message that I have for you. And so John is told that same thing. Take the scroll, eat it. It'll be sweet as honey in your mouth, but sour in your stomach. So John eats it, and that's exactly what happens. He says, it was sweet in my mouth, but it was sour in my stomach. And you go, what in the world does this mean? Like, did John literally eat a scroll and it tasted good until it got to its stomach and then it turned him sour? Maybe he does literally, but essentially, here's what I think is taking place here. John is told right after eating it, you must prophesy again about, or some of your translations may be better, say, or against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so in my opinion, I think John in some way becomes a representative of all Christians in this moment. That John gets to be our representative and God tells him, take this scroll and eat it. It will be sweet in your mouth, but sour in your stomach. And here's what's taking place. For Christians in our world presently and during the final days of tribulation, the truth that God puts in our mouth is sweet because it's true. But when we ingest it and we take it in and when we know that we have a message for the world, it can kind of be a sour message, right? Because we do have this message of judgment and condemnation, that there is a God who is holy and righteous and he will judge the earth. And we stand with this truth in our mouth that's such a sweet truth. 
That there is a loving God who wants no one to suffer apart from him, who wants no one to be apart from him. That we have this message of love and hope for the world. And yet sometimes when we speak that message, especially when it's not received well, it kind of becomes sour to us, doesn't it? And that we go, man, I don't know if I want to speak that, that message of truth. That there's a God who does love people, but he's also just and is coming to judge. And if you don't accept him, then there's an eternal punishment for you away from him and outside of him. And so this message is sweet to me because it has a hope of salvation, but it's also sour to me because it also has the message of condemnation. And so I think in what's going on here that John is taking this message, eating it, and he's telling us that we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to have this same message in our mouths. We speak out for the truth regardless of the cost. There are things in our world that are wrong and that we just need to stand up for to speak God's truth into it. So whether it's standing for the sanctity of human life or whether it's holding for the biblical definition of marriage or if it's fighting to end human trafficking and slavery, Christians must be able to stand for truth and prophesy against evil. And we've seen these things play out in huge ways just in the past two weeks. Sex trafficking rings that have been busted during the Super Bowl and even after. Things here in our own backyard. The sanctity of human life, a vote that did not pass in our Senate that would help children live and require doctors to give life-saving measures if a child survived an abortion, and it didn't pass. And as Christians, we go, well, what's our role in this? I think we have to on some level, whatever it is in your way that we go, I know what God's truth is about how he values life and loves life and wants the best for people, and I need to speak truth about these things. But church, here's what I want us to encourage us to do. That we need to speak truth in love. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And John said that his grace came first in that equation. We need to be people full of grace. That we hold out truth in a grace-filled, loving way. That we don't turn people off to the gospel because we're so arrogant and dead set in our stance that we oppose people. We need to stand for truth and love people in doing so. That's the call of the Christian life. We stand for what's right, but not to the isolation and exclusion of people who are going through difficult journeys in their life, that have made tough choices, that are wondering how to live in the middle of those decisions that they've made or the lifestyle that they've chosen. And so we're called to be people who stand with this word that's sweet in our mouths but sour in our stomachs. And to know regardless of the cost for us, whether it's in this age or in a generation to come, that if we face tribulation and persecution and trials later on in life, that we're willing to stand firm in the truth. That we hold fast to God's truth. Too many people's worldviews, if you're taking notes and want to write something down again, just jot this down. Too many people's worldviews are informed by what's culturally acceptable or what their emotions are telling them. So if you want to be able to speak truthfully to a world that's being judged because of sin, our worldview has to be informed by the one who created the world. Doesn't that just make sense? That if I want to stand in a worldview of truth, then I need to get my truth from the one who created the world and knows how it's supposed to best function and work. 
too many Christians are caught up in their emotions and going, well, this is what I feel like is true. <laughs> well, this is what's true for me. This is where I find myself. And God's going, that's fine, but here's how I've ordained things to be. And I want you to come underneath my truth and put yourself under my authority. And so we don't want to be just doing what's culturally acceptable or what our emotions tell us, but we want to be under the worldview of Jesus. So I want to make this clear that this isn't just about a social justice message. Uh, we're not necessarily called to be social justice crusaders. We're fir first and foremost called to hold out the gospel of truth, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Christ. And as we do that, we penetrate darkness with light and we do our part to bring God's kingdom to earth. So each of us as disciples of Jesus has this responsibility to speak the truth, no matter how difficult that truth is to hear or how negatively the audience might receive it and respond. Uh, J. Scott Duvall in his commentary on the book of Revelation wrote this. He said, the sweetness of the fulfillment of God's purposes for this world is tempered by the bitterness of suffering in the interim. Yet the suffering of the faithful witnesses is also their triumph. Following the lamb means that apparent defeat at the hands of evil forces, uh, the evil forces actually results in victory thanks to God. The cross is not the final word. The resurrection is. And so for us, when we think about this, suffering or persecution or death will not be the final word for Christians because people can take our very lives from us. But the good news of the gospel is, is that the resurrection of Jesus promises that we will be raised to life as well, that we will be brought back with him, that we will know him and walk with him and be with him forever. And so that kind of brings us to the end of chapter 10. And John's saying, look, I was given this message. It's a message of Christian faith. I believe that we're supposed to speak truth. It has truth in it. It has sweetness in it. But it also can turn our stomach sour because there's this message undergirding it of judgment and trial and tribulation. And so then we get to verse uh, chapter 11. And he continues on. We're going to try to get through chapter 11 quickly this morning. So read with me, if you will, verses 1 through 14. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, now go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of them from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days of the, bre the breath of God, uh, the breath of life from God entered them, they stood on their feet and struck terror, uh, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake 
and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Remember, the second woe came at the end of the sixth trumpet. The third woe will come with the seventh trumpet that we would skip ahead and see in the next chapter. And so John, at the beginning of this chapter, is told to measure the temple. Uh, and it's important for us to understand some things about this. Number one, the temple, at the time that John wrote this, the temple in Israel had been destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 A.D., John's writing somewhere around 90 AD. So he's not talking about that temple, although it's possible, maybe even probable, that a new temple will be erected in Jerusalem and that worship will continue for the Jewish people in this new temple. The second thing we can think of here is that the metaphor of measuring a city or a structure in Scripture really has nothing to do with determining its size. God isn't telling John, hey, go measure that so you can see how big it is or how wide it is or how long it is or how tall it is. He's basically saying this measurement symbol from Old Testament passages help us to understand that it's a way of determining if a city will either be preserved or be destroyed. And so you see this play out in the Old Testament when uh, Ezekiel and, and others are told, hey, measure this place, go and measure this. God would measure something to discuss its pending doom and judgment. In other places in the Old Testament, God would measure something and he'd say, I'm going to preserve that. I'm going to make that mine. That's going to hold fast. It's going to be true. And so this measurement doesn't necessarily mean John's going, I wanted to see how big the temple was. He's saying, I want to know, is it going to stand or is it going to fall? What's God going to do in the middle of that? So John measuring the temple seems to indicate God's preservation and protection. It seems to indicate that God's going to do something. Now, some scholars believe this is a preservation of the church, while others believe that it speaks of a future turning of Jewish people for salvation. Personally, this scholar doesn't know which one of those things might be right or might be wrong. So uh, I'm not going to necessarily guess on that about what the, judgment, what the measurement is. But what we do know is that for a period of 42 months, there will be persecution against God's people. And yet God is going to preserve his people throughout it. He's going to protect his people through this time. Uh, in verse three, he says, I'll appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days or 42 months. It's the same duration of time. And they'll prophesy clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Olive trees tend to represent the Jewish people in scripture. The lampstands we saw from earlier in the book of Revelation represent the church. So some people think, okay, well, this, the Jewish people and the church, they're going to be the, the witnesses, maybe. Uh, verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Verse 6, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So the question that we kind of come around to here is, who are these two witnesses? What are they doing on the earth during this period of time? We've given a glimpse. Let me help clarify some things really quick. There are a couple of views on who these witnesses are. First, they could represent the church speaking the word of God to the world. Uh, there are two because of the word of God and the testimony of the church. Or because in Jewish law, two witnesses were required to make sure that a statement was true. 
You had to have two verifying accounts to say this is true. We come together in our agreement. So some people say it's the church. It's recounted as, as two people because they're the word of God and the testimony of the people. Maybe that's how it goes down. It could be the church and the Jews come together to fulfill the mystery of Christ. That's, that's one interpretation. Second is this, that it's two actual historical eschatological persons who testify in supernatural ways during the three and a half year period of tribulation on the earth. So it could very well be that these are two literal people who come and they're on earth and they're given these powers and they do these things. We'll talk about that in a second. Three, there's a combination of both. George Ladd says it's the flexibility of apocalyptic symbolism must allow for such possibilities. <laughs> that it could be two people. It could be the church and the Jews together that they come in the fold. They're in part of the mystery of Christ. Their testimony and the word of God is what we're talking about. It could be both and. And so when we think about this, I happen to believe that there are two actual historical people. Uh, but even in that, there's two possibilities for these things. So you go, it could be Moses and Elijah. How many of you have heard that before? These two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, they come back down to earth. They stand on the earth. They have all these powers. Why do we think it's Moses and Elijah? Well, because of the things that they do, right? If you go back and you read the Old Testament, what did you see of Moses? Moses was given the power to stick his staff into the water of Egypt, and it turned blood red. He does that again. He calls down blood into the water. He has the power to bring plagues against Egypt. He's given that authority again here in the, in the end times. What about Elijah? Elijah was given power to not make it rain in Israel for a period of time, for several years. There's no rain in Israel. There's a, there's a drought because God gave him the ability to do that until the people would turn back to God. It set up this major uh, illustration that God gave him with the prophets of Baal. And so all of these different things that take place, we look at this and we go, this is Moses and Elijah because of those things. We also know that when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah. God literally sent Moses and Elijah to stand with Jesus. The Jews have a saying that before the, the Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And so maybe Elijah and Moses come again before the return of Christ. That's one way to think about it. It's also possible that two people, just like you or I, do these things and act in the spirit and the power of Elijah. If you think about what Jesus said that his disciples asked him one time, before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come. Where's Elijah? What did Jesus say? It was John, John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make way the path of the Lord. So before Jesus came, John came, Elijah, the spirit and the power of Elijah. It could be that these two men are just men who are given the spirit and the power of Elijah, and they do the same kinds of things that Moses and Elijah did. However this plays out, it's not necessarily for us to know the details of, but it's to trust that when it happens, people will recognize, people will know, Christians will know. So I want us to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. And we see these things unfold, we should be prepared. Last thing, here's what happens next. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. 
But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Can you imagine what those days will be like? The people think they've won. These two men who cause all of this heartache and all of this turmoil and water turns to blood and plagues of all kinds come and no rain on the earth. And then this beast rises up and John just roughly mentions and this beast out of the abyss. It's the first time we've heard this in Revelation. And it's kind of like he just glances past it. And you go, why? Why didn't we get a description of this beast? Well, because the people of God, the Jewish people, the early Christians, they would have known the writings of Daniel. They would have known the writings of Ezekiel. They would have known the writings of Amos. They would have known these things that describe who the beast is. So they would have had a working mindset and knowledge of the beast already. We're going to see a depiction of the beast in more detail later on in chapter 14 or in chapter 13. But for now, he just says this beast came out of the abyss and he killed these two witnesses. And so they lie dead, and nobody offers them a burial. In fact, the, the world celebrates over them. There's a new Christmas. Amazon goes crazy. And there's this new celebration of these men that are dead, and they just celebrate. The world celebrates their death for three days until the breath of God comes back into them. And can you imagine? John couldn't have imagined this, but we can. In our world of 24-hour news coverage where there's cameras all over the globe, can you imagine the news coverage of just showing these men laying in the streets and the celebration, the party that's going on around them. And then all of a sudden there's breaking news on CNN. I'm just getting confirmation that those dead guys just stood up. Uh, oh my gosh, now they are floating off to heaven. Like this is going to cause global turmoil. It's going to be crazy. This is the thing that starts to play out. And he says, this takes place in this great city where the men die. It's referred to figuratively here as Sodom. Sodom represents moral depravity. We see that in the Old Testament. It also represents Egypt, which talks about oppression and slavery. But then also Jerusalem, which represented the rejection of Jesus. So you have this great city where these men die, the, the Antichrist's home base. He goes, there's, there's oppression here, there's moral depravity here, there's rejection of Jesus here. And yet these men stand and they testify about Jesus for three and a half years. And I think their message is the same thing, that as they testify, the church is supposed to testify. As they live out the message of the gospel, we're supposed to live out the message of the gospel. And so when we see the end of this, it says that when they're taken back into heaven, there's an earthquake resulting in 7,000 deaths. A portion of the city is destroyed. And the survivors will give glory to the God of heaven. Now, that phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture. We had a conversation about this this week with my sermon planning team. And we said, does that mean they'll just kind of in fear go, okay, God, is we going to give him glory because he's going to destroy us all? Or does that mean there's a repentance and a turn? And it seems to be, based on passages of Scripture elsewhere where this phrase is used, that there is a repentance that occurs, that those who are not killed in the city will become followers of Jesus. And it may indicate a much larger turning of Jewish people to the Messiah, that after they see these men resurrected, ascend to heaven, that people will turn to Jesus. And that's the hope we hold out is that even if for three and a half years people reject our message and hate us and want us dead and they celebrate our deaths, even if it's your life, 
that you proclaim the gospel and no one accepts it. But at the end, if they can turn to Christ, then that's why we do what we do. We hold out the message of the gospel. So here's the question that we looked at this morning. The question that I posed at the beginning of the message has been answered in these two chapters. What's the role of the church in the period known as the tribulation? The church is to be witnesses of Christ's truth. Witnesses of Christ's love. For those who are here during this period of time, and for us today, there's tribulation going on all around us. Our world is a mess. We have a message to call people to faith in Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves today then is this. Am I being true to the message of the kingdom of God, even against persecution and hardship? Because it's our responsibility to take his message and to show his hope. God shows us glimpses of the future so we can know how to stand firm as followers of Jesus no matter what happens to us. Stand firm. So the question I'll leave you with today if it's our responsibility as the church to hold out the message of salvation to the world, who do you need to share that good news with today? Who do you need to share that good news with this week? Who do you need to be praying about today? And as we close our service, we're going to end this way. We're going to sing one last song. But I'm going to ask you guys to be prayerfully asking God to lay those people or that person on your heart who needs to know the truth of the gospel. You have a relationship with them, but you've never ventured out to share your faith. And this week you need to. This week you need to take that next step of saying, I want them to know the truth. Even if it costs me, I want to hold out the truth. It's a message that's sweet when we speak it. It might have sour consequences, but that doesn't deter us from sharing the truth. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.